You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thank you as always for joining us this week. A special Veterans Day edition of the weekly update and a special election edition of the weekly update. A big surprise uh, in the election results or many surprises uh, that I'll discuss uh, a little bit with you. Also, we have major revelations related to your support through tax dollars of what could be quite dangerous activities in Ukraine, the biolabs there. Uh, Judicial Watch has some uh, shocking information uh, to disclose to you. Uh, First up, though, is uh, Election Day, or is it Election Week, or is it Election, it looks like, months? As you know, I've been been highlighting the the effort to undermine our election system by expanding the notion of Election Day to Election Weeks, Election Months. And we're seeing this in... uh, outrageous fashion, in my view, in Arizona and in Nevada, where there are at least three major races, maybe four, if you count the governorship of Nevada, I'm not sure where that stands. And two of those races uh, could essentially tell us who's going to be running the United States Senate, Republicans or Democrats. The Senate in Arizona, the Senate seat in uh, Nevada, Uh, They don't know who won or they are counting the ballots in such a way that it may take weeks, if not months, before uh, we're told who is the winner. Now, I don't probably need to convince you that's outrageous. Uh, Counting ballots after elections, despite what the media tells you, despite what the big tech censors tell you, is inappropriate. It's not normal in the sense that it should be encouraged, and it invites fraud and undermines confidence that voters have a right to have in uh, elections. So when you're counting ballots after election day, it raises questions inherently. And the media would like you to believe, uh, don't, you know, ignore what you see, ignore the man behind the curtain in terms of election integrity, which is uh, the endless counting of ballots in a way that, you know, I, I, I think that honest Democrats, or at least voters, uh, don't like this notion of uh, elections going on for weeks. But, you know, this is, this is the reality of uh, the left's restructuring of our election systems with the media's help uh, trying to program us uh, to accept uh, the decimation of election integrity. And in Maricopa County, Arizona, uh, we've been investigating this as well. Uh, It was further undermined by the failure of, uh, it's it's kind of a bipartisan problem in in Arizona because the state is the, uh, uh, the state official, Katie Hobbs, the secretary of state who's running now for governor, uh, her office is responsible for, for machinery. And Maricopa County, obviously, generally, the elections administered by the Republican-controlled government there. And according to at least one lawsuit that was filed, upwards of 30, 35 percent of election uh, tabulators and printers were not working. So what happened there is that uh, voters were trying to uh, have their votes counted 
why they waited. You know, essentially, it, it, it'll be run through the machine, it tabulates your vote, and then you leave. Uh, but the machine wasn't reading, or many machines, or too many machines, however we want to characterize it, uh, weren't reading the ballots. Well, I don't know, maybe they were reading it, but either way, they were getting rejected. And so voters were being told, well, you can wait online and wait for them to fix it, or you can uh, essentially drop it in the box, um, supposedly a secure box, and it would be voted, uh, counted later, uh, at least hand counted. Or I don't even know how they'd be counted later, whether they'd be hand counted or uh, tabulated in a different machine. Or you could take your ballot, I guess, tear it up and go vote somewhere else. So, sounds confusing, doesn't it? It sounds something that you might not like to go through if you're just trying to vote. It sounds like something that makes you think, I don't know if my vote's going to be counted. It sounds confusing in the sense that, I don't know what to do, maybe I just won't vote. It sounds confusing in the sense that uh, these directions are difficult to convey generally, and are they being conveyed directly or correctly by the numerous myriad uh, election officials who uh, were stuck having to explain why, why their machines, why the machines weren't working? And indeed, as a, as I um, report to you here, my understanding is those ballots that were unable to be tabulated online, excuse me, uh, on site, uh, are. St- and, but were left behind by voters thinking they'd be counted later that day, still haven't been counted. So you've had this systemic breakdown of on-site voter tabulation that was planned in Maricopa County. And Maricopa County, for those of you outside of Arizona, uh, is the biggest county in Arizona. It's where most of the people live. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, I don't know, the New York City of New York. It's it's basically where everyone lives. And uh, with all due respect to the wonderful residents of Arizona who live outside Maricopa County. And uh, so this is not a, a small matter. So no one knows when these votes are going to be counted. And then on top of that, you have in Nevada, Clark County accepts ballots mailed as long as they're, quote, postmarked on or before November 8th up until Saturday of Election Week. So we don't know when those ballots are going to be counted. Last I saw, the official said, we expect unofficial results next week, next Thursday. When are the official results? Who knows? So the idea that we uh, have these key races in, you know, Arizona is one of the most important states in the union, uh, certainly when it comes to elections. And we don't know who, who's, who's winning one way or another, or who's going to win. Because the numbers change depending on what batches are arbitrarily released in a way that undermines confidence in the elections. So I want to repeat again, this is what our goal should be. Our goal should be to encourage people to vote in person on election day. We should not have mass mail-in balloting. We should not have early voting that goes on for weeks and weeks beforehand. And we should demand that systems are in place to ensure that ballots are counted on election day, not for days and weeks and months afterwards. 
And of course, anyone who votes should be required to show a secure voter, uh, photo ID. And certainly anyone who's registered to vote and or who votes should also be uh, confirmed to be a United States citizen. What's so hard about this? You know what's so hard about it? That policy, those basic election integrity measures are opposed by the left. Why do I think they oppose it? Because it, it makes it harder to steal elections. And they want to be able to steal elections when possible. There's no other reasonable explanation. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily impact individuals who are voting it by race or any other classes. So there's no, nothing discriminatory in these regulations. They pretend they are, but there aren't. You can see that in Georgia where you've had this uh, tremendous turnout, irrespective of the increased security measures for voting down there. So uh, as long as uh, we have mass mail-in ballots, it's, we're going to have um, elections that people won't have confidence in. And if conservatives um, are, are want to kind of be able to compete, forget about the um, you know the issue of the law and election integrity. You, you want people to vote and to feel like their votes are going to count. And if they think their votes aren't going to count, they're not going to participate. And I tell you, the best way to ensure that people don't participate is to have this mass mail-in balloting. Uh, and because uh, conservatives don't trust it. And, uh, you know, the evidence is if, if elections are more secure, people of both political parties are more likely to participate. Minorities are more likely to participate. Uh, so the failure to address this uh, mail-in ballot, um, the, the increase in the use of mail-in balloting, the mass mail-in balloting, uh, undermines election integrity. And as uh, in the case of Arizona, it wasn't even the mail-in balloting. It was just a lack of either incompetence or I don't know if it was corruption. Certainly, we're going to be asking questions. But this casual approach to counting ballots and being told is perfectly normal. You know, I'm not, it isn't normal. It isn't normal. And anyone who tells you it's normal is promoting a partisan left-wing talking point. People want to know who won the election on election day or election night, not three weeks later. Because any adult looking at that recognizes that as an opportunity for fraud and it undermines the confidence people have, underlines confidence people have in the results. So the other big issue that I'm sure conservatives are concerned about, I, I thought Republicans were going to win big, and obviously they didn't. They're going to barely uh, take control of Congress, on you know, and even then, who knows? But presuming they do, it's going to have a smaller majority in Congress and in the House. Uh, in the Senate, it, it could you could actually have a, a slight majority in the Senate still for Republicans, depending on how those, at least those two races in Arizona and Nevada go. Uh, but certainly Republicans have underperformed given the political environment in which they were running. And Democrats, uh, I mean, they should be happy. I mean, if I'm Joe Biden, I'd be like, well, you know, this was a validation of my approach. This is, uh, I, I ran on this 
I'm going to bash the other side as being against democracy. I'm going to use and abuse government to suppress my political opposition. I'm going to use government to censor my political opposition. I'm going to use government to raid the homes of my political opposition. I'm going to jail my political opposition through abuse of the use of force with the FBI and Justice Department, uh, spying on parents who are active in trying to uh, police what their children were uh, being taught, implying that every person who opposes him politically is a potential terrorist. It got, it got him the votes necessary uh, to be, uh, you know, to kind of say that I've been vindicated, right? I mean, that's what I'd be saying if I were him, and I think he's kind of said that. While at the same time telling Americans he's going to continue his despotic ways, he suggested that he wants to take steps to ensure that President Trump is unable to run as his opponent. And he said that he wants to um, launch a national security investigation into Elon Musk, who he sees as a political opponent, because not only is he uh, being more vocally supportive of Republicans, but he's daring to express interest in having more free speech on Twitter. So, uh, you know, we're going to have more of the same, certainly from the Biden administration. And the question is, what, what are Republicans going to do? Are they going to stick with the House leadership and the Senate leadership, McConnell and McCarthy, uh, that ran the campaigns that resulted in um, these big losses? And I know there are some who say that Trump was responsible and all that. I, I, I you know. You know, the politics are what they are. People are going to look at these results and say and, and blame whoever they want to for political convenience, you know, because it's politically useful, I should say. Uh, but as I look at this, I, I see certainly on the House side, uh, the House leadership, the House campaign operations that were pushing these, uh, you know, the themes for the election is that they really failed to uh, motivate the conservative base in a way that would have had a lot of folks come out the vote. And by that, they ignored the issue of government corruption. Uh, they didn't talk much about the invasion issue. They, uh, were they running on anti-corruption issues related to Biden? Of course not. And on abortion, they were frozen. They refused to embrace uh, the moral uh, take that the right to life should be celebrated and extended to innocent unborn human beings. Uh, their, their response to the left's promotion of abortion was silence largely. And a little bit after, you know, a little, you know, a little bit, um, just a little bit before the election, they said, well, the other side's too extreme. Well, that wasn't obviously enough to motivate, motivate pro-life voters to come out and vote for them in large numbers. So in my view, you had this failed leadership on, uh, in the House and the Senate uh, promoting uh, in, uh, uh, and, and actually being antagonistic to some of these uh, core uh, conservative values. And it resulted in the results that we saw. Now, for instance, do you think Kevin McCarthy is going to embrace an accountability project in the House? Is he going to say we have to impeach Biden 
we need to have a broad-based impeachment inquiry, as I've suggested, or that we need to issue subpoenas, or we need to hold accountable those members of the House who are abusing their offices to target innocent Americans like they were doing on the January 6th committee? I don't think he is. So uh, as best I can tell, many conservatives, because I'm one of them, uh, think there needs to be a change in leadership in the House and in the Senate that better reflects uh, at least our conservative values. And uh, this is not a political question. This is, do we want government officials in leadership positions in the House who are not going to do the right thing for government accountability and transparency and to address the threats to the republic? Would the president of the United States threatening the jail as political opponents the day after an election? Virtual silence from the Republican leadership has story after story implicates President Biden in political corruption, RICO racketeering type operations being run out of his vice president's office. Virtual silence. So I don't know who's going to be speaker. Is it going to be McCarthy? I don't know. But I do know that if you have views as to who should be speaker, you should be calling your elected representatives. Now, it may be tough to call the ones who are just elected because they may not have office numbers yet, but they could be voting as soon as next week as to who um, their leadership's gonna be. And I'm not quite sure when the House uh, speaker uh, uh, election would take place, where that selection would take place. But you should share your views with your uh, members, uh, your representatives in Congress. Same thing goes for McConnell's office. Do you think McConnell should be the majority leader and or minority leader, depending on how it turns out? You know, McConnell uh, was supportive of a lot of key measures of Biden's spending operation on transportation. And I think he did. He supported some anti-Second Amendment regulations that Biden promoted, if I recall correctly. So, you know, you have this approach that, um, and it, it's not because I oppose Republicans because they're Republican or I oppose Democrats because they're Democrats. As, as an activist and as the head of Judicial Watch, a conservative organization, I think leaders should be committed to the issues that we care about, which is ensuring our republic is protected, our constitution is vindicated, and those who are corrupt are held accountable. And if there are leaders in Congress uh, who in the, you know, it's basically a, a congressional decision, you know, we're going to we're going to say what we think. No one's saying don't elect them. I'm that they're elected. The question is, what positions of influence should they have? What positions of power should they have? And that's something everyone can have a, a, a view on. So some of you may be upset about the way the elections turned out. Uh, I was surprised. I wasn't upset. But uh, what I do know is that uh, no matter who would win in Congress and who is going to run Congress, who is going to be the speaker or the majority leader, uh, Judicial Watch still has a lot of work to do. You know, we have this election integrity work that is ongoing. We have litigation in Pennsylvania and Illinois to uh, check 
the counting of ballots or stop the counting of ballots for up to two weeks, mailed ballots for, that arrive for up to two weeks after an election. Incredible. Colorado, we've got a case that's ongoing to clean up election rolls there. Uh, in New York as well. So we'll, all that has to continue, and there'll be more litigation uh, defend, to defend the rule of law and election integrity. And then, uh, you know, we have this issue of the corruption of the Biden administration. I don't know what Congress is going to do. I do know from past experience, Congress has great difficulty for a variety of reasons that I could spend a lot of time talking about, but wouldn't really get us to the point, in getting information from the executive branch. Heck, Republicans who ran Congress couldn't get information from uh, an administration run by a Republican, the Trump administration. You had Rod Rosenstein and all the Justice Department and FBI uh, gang refusing to turn documents over. So how do you think it's going to go for Republicans? And so uh, when they are, if they're presuming they're running the House, when they start conducting oversight of um, uh, the Biden administration, it's going to be two years of document fights. It doesn't mean it's not worth having. It doesn't mean it doesn't need to be done. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be oversight. Uh, but it does mean that judicial watch is, uh, should has, <laughs> is, is going to be even more important than ever because we're better than Congress at getting documents out of administrations. We've demonstrated time and time again uh, that the FOIA lawsuits we file often get records that Congress is unable to get, whether it be on Benghazi, the IRS, the abuse of Trump. Uh, I'm going to be talking about information related to Ukraine, COVID, Fauci, you name it. There isn't a topic that Judicial Watch hasn't uh, been able to um, uh, through FOIA, extract documents on uh, that members of Congress aren't looking at and saying, why can't we do that? And let's not pretend they're, quote, all of a sudden going to be able to do that uh, with uh, this new, uh, with, with the way things are likely to be over the next two years. So our work is going to be more essential than ever. Uh, we will continue to provide leadership in terms of challenging and exposing and trying to stop, more importantly, government corruption. And one other piece of advice I give, I'd give members of Congress, and I do look forward to working with new members of Congress of either political party, I'm happy to talk to anyone, uh, as to um, what they should be doing. You know, in many ways, we've already proven there's been criminal conduct and corruption. And the question is, what is Congress going to do about it? Do they need to look at more documents? No, that's usually an excuse not to do something substantial. If I were them, I would be looking at the issues that have already been proved. The abuse of the FBI, the abuse of the Justice Department to spy on Trump, uh, the lies about gain-of-function research. And they should be making budgetary decisions and impeachment decisions and other accountability decisions with respect to agencies and individual employees, meaning zeroing out, for instance, uh, the uh, uh, salaries of certain officials who engaged in misconduct or, or who are engaging in misconduct and, and using the power of the purse uh, to do the, the work of accountability. It's not perfect accountability. You know, I know some of, uh, many of us would prefer some prosecutions here and there that we evidently are never really going to get from Durham at this point. 
but there's other thing, there are other things and tools that Congress can use uh, to get some accountability, and I encourage them to use it, uh, to use those tools. And it doesn't mean that Judicial Watch stops uh, doing our work in the meantime, but our work also includes encouraging government officials to do their jobs, which isn't just to blindly spend our money, but to make sure that the money spent well and uh, if there's misconduct in government, that they take steps to address it directly. So we do what we can in terms of the heavy lifting, but it's well past time for Congress to start doing their heavy lifting uh, with respect to government corruption, oversight, and accountability. And, and as you know, we're well ahead of the game already on that. And so back to work. Next up uh, are some incredible documents that we got. And what's really incredible is we didn't even have to sue for them. It took them forever to give us the documents, but, you know, sometimes we wait a few months and we get some documents. In this case, we filed a, a, a FOIA request in February of 2022 uh, to the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which is a Pentagon agency, uh, for documents involving uh, work with a government contractor, uh, called uh, Black and, and um, Veach, I think that's how it's pronounced, V-E-A-T-C-H, involving work of any manner with biosafety laboratories in the country of Ukraine. Now, why are we interested in that? Of, you know why we're interested in that, because it was a major controversy. Uh, the controversy is, what was the United States doing in Ukraine with uh, bio? Uh, with these biolabs. Now, we were supporting dangerous biolab, um, biological um, investigations in China, and it looks like we've been supporting, under the guise of managing them, uh, dangerous work in Ukraine. And it's come to a head because of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. You know, the Russians were using the biolabs as a pretext to justify their aggression, so the immediate response by the media was, oh, we're not allowed to kind of admit that the U.S. is involved in, in some really risky, potentially, biolab activity in Ukraine, as opposed to uh, just saying, yeah, well, that's what we're doing, and we we're just doing it because we're trying to re uh, supposedly reduce the threat. Yeah, so I don't know about you, but I'd like to know why the heck we've been maintaining biolabs in Ukraine, engaged in Lord knows what, for 20 years. I understand after the fall of the Soviet Union, we would have an interest in making sure that such weapons laboratories or biolabs uh, were uh, uh, maintained properly and frankly shut down properly. Instead, we've been running them more or less for 20 years in partnership with Ukrainians. Why? That's one of the reasons we do the FOIAs. And of course, you know, in March of 2022, uh, Victoria Newland, the corrupt um, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, how, why do I say she's corrupt? Because she was part of this anti-Trump Russia smear operation, which saw the abuse and misuse of State Department resources to, to uh, smear Trump and undermine the peaceful transfer of power in a seditious way. So we're relying on this 
corrupt official to protect our interest in Ukraine and Russia. But that's an aside. She said Ukraine has biological research facilities, which in fact we are now quite concerned that Russia forces may be seeking to gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of these research materials from falling into the hands of Russian forces should they approach. Well, what are the research materials? So the documents we were able to uncover uh, show that in 2019, I believe, we spent $11 million on uh, programs related to these Ukraine labs. The documents show, let me get the specific, uh, Included in the records is an order for supplies or services dated August 1st, 2019, issued by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, the total amount of the contract award is $11.2 million. It includes approximately 35 contract line items set forth in a statement of work, and it's titled Electronic Integrated Disease Surveillance and Pathogen Asset Control Implementation. The statement of work was not provided, was, nor was there any explanation for the withholding. So we did get these records voluntarily, but they withheld a lot of information from us that we may ultimately have to sue to obtain. And the other information shows that they were working on seemingly pretty dangerous materials. Uh, as I say, there's a lot of uh, language or documents talking about pathogen asset control systems. Uh, you don't want to have a pathogen around you generally. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. But that's what this was all about. And let me give you some of the information or some of the material and some of the trainings that they were uh, engaged in or the United States was engaged in uh, with our Ukrainian partners, uh, quote, on-the-job training. So one of the pathogens is anthrax. The documents refers to uh, refer to a Ukrainian biolab, uh, their PAC uh, pathogen asset control system, on-the-job training uh, that was conducted for um, anthrax laboratory activities in December of 2018. Okay, I want you to hear that again. We were working on anthrax laboratory activities, pathogen asset control systems related to anthrax laboratory activities in December of 2018. Why on earth are we maintaining anthrax labs in Ukraine? Why? Why aren't we shutting them down? And the other documents show we're training virtually their entire top staff in these labs, the head of the anthrax la laboratory, the senior researcher laboratory of uh, bacterial animal diseases, of which I believe anthrax is, the researcher for the anthrax uh, laboratory. We have other documents showing from their trainings that uh, this is, this is something that really got me a little bit nervous. Maybe it will get you nervous. Researcher of Department of Avian Diseases. Now, some of this is agricultural, right? A lot of these biolabs look at uh, threats to agricultural uh, 
populations, uh, animal populations. But some of it is weaponizing those biological threats to animal populations. So there's always two, si there's always two sides to that type of research because you could drop a, a nasty biological weapon into a uh, population of cattle or, uh, uh, or pigs, whatever, and decimate uh, the industry of, uh, you know, the agricultural industry of a country. Head of the Brussels-Ossis Laboratory. Brussels-Ossis. Look at it up. It's a pathogen. And uh, it's been used in biological weapons research. That's what we're supporting in Ukraine. Training those folks. So we're not allowed to talk about that in the context of the Russia thing because there's all this political correctness uh, for, uh, for Ukraine and Russia that you can't criticize anything that's happening in, within the Ukrainian government or anything that the United States has been doing in Ukraine. Well, I for one am going to criticize the fact that the United States has been for 20 years in one of the most corrupt countries in Europe, if not the world, funding dangerous pathogens uh, in biolabs or funding the handling of dangerous pathogens in biolabs. And we're still doing it. And it's probably even more dangerous given the war scenario uh, that we're facing there. I mean, do we have U.S. officials in Ukraine right now at these biolabs? I don't know. Is this training going on right now? I don't know. The documents aren't clear on that. Because much of, much of the documents were from 2018 and 19, from what I recall. So maybe Congress can look into this. Hey, Biden administration, are we doing anything with anthrax in Ukraine? Why are we shutting it all down? I didn't see anything about gain of function here, but I'm sure it's happening. So this is why Judicial Watch is so great. Many of reasons Judicial Watch is great. But we've got this war going on in Ukraine. And at one of the big issues is biolab safety in Ukraine. And it's little old Judicial Watch is getting the key information about what's really going on there. Yes, we are supporting biolabs in Ukraine. Now, the Biden administration says it's all designed to reduce the threat. Now, to be fair, I'm going to read directly from the, uh, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's website about uh, what they say they're up to there. The U.S. Department of Defense's Biological Threat Reduction Program collaborates with partner countries to counter the threat of outbreaks, deliberate, accidental, or natural, of the world's most dangerous infectious diseases. The program accomplishes its bio-threat reduction mission through development of a bio-risk management culture, international research partnerships, and partner capacity for enhanced biosecurity, biosafety, and biosurveillance measures. The Biological Threat Reduction Program's priorities in Ukraine are to consolidate and secure pathogens and toxins as security concern and to continue to ensure Ukraine can de detect and report outbreaks caused by dangerous pathogens before they pose security or stability threats. I don't know about you, but I understand. Uh, now, I've, I don't believe that the best way to handle the threat of, of anthrax in Ukraine is to let any anthrax remain in Ukraine. 
Do you trust our government and the Ukrainian government to figure out how to keep that secure? I've got three words for you. Gain of function. We can't, we can't even, based on the documents that we've uncovered at Judicial Watch and exposed, we can't even manage our own biolabs here in the United States without putting the population and those working in them at risk. We've got this program in China we've been running through Fauci that's resulted in, I think has resulted, I know it's not for sure, but I think has likely resulted in COVID. And gain of function still going on here in the United States. And this same gang is managing Ukraine? Who do they got running it? Burisma? I say sarcastically, I know Burisma isn't running it. What a nightmare. And it's Judicial Watch that's exposing it. So uh, we've got this wonderful holiday we're celebrating, Veterans Day. And I wish you and yours a happy Veterans Day. We've got a lot of great veterans here uh, in Judicial Watch's office. I, I used to, we've got so many veterans, I can't even track them all. That's what's so great about Judicial Watch. So I'd like to thank especially those veterans who work for Judicial Watch. And, um, and I know we have tremendous support in uh, the veterans community. Uh, Judicial Watch has been honored to litigate on behalf of many, many veterans over the years uh, who have been unfortunately abused by the system and uh, in ways that uh, you know, would, would, would just set your hair on fire. And we've got much litigation in that regard as well. So we, we're, we're so proud to work with uh, veterans and veterans groups uh, to uh, uh, defend those who serve from abuse by the government. Uh, and I don't need to know, tell you veterans or those of you still serving about how uh, mindless and um, vindictive uh, the military can be for those who cause, quote, the wrong type of trouble. Uh, so uh, Judicial Watch's work is essential there, and we're proud to do it, and we are um, honored to be able to do it because it's the least we can do. I, I, I'm not a veteran. The most dangerous thing I do is get into a taxi cab. Uh, but uh, those of you who have risked, our li- risk, risked your lives uh, for our country, the least we can do is uh, make sure that the, your country is as good as it ought to be in terms of uh, being free from corruption and that our freedoms and liberties here that you're willing to die for are being protected by the civilians who know better, both in the non-governmental class, like Judicial Watch, the civilian population, and in the government class, the politicians who are entrusted with the American people uh, to make sure that our government is worthy of the risks that our veterans have uh, uh, been put under to protect them. And one of my favorite um, Veterans Day speeches and remembrances is by Ronald Reagan. I'm, I'm, I'm often referring to it in all sorts of circumstances. And this is a speech he made at uh, the Veterans Day National Ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery in November of, on November 11th, uh, 1985. And I'm going to read a little bit from it, uh, so um, bear with me here. Sometime back, I received in the name of our country the bodies of four Marines who had died while on active duty. I said then, there is a special sadness that accompanies the death of a serviceman, for we're never quite good enough to them. Not really. We can't be. 
because what they gave us is beyond our powers to repay. And so when a serviceman dies, it is a tear in the fabric, a break in the hole, and all we can do is remember. It is in a way an odd thing to honor those who died in defense of our country, in defense of us in wars far away. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up their and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us, and all we can do is remember. And the living have a responsibility to remember the conditions that led to the wars in which our heroes died. Perhaps we can start by remembering this, that all those who died for us in our country were, in one way or another, victims of a peace process that failed, victims of a decision to forget certain things, to forget, for instance, that the surest way to keep a peace going is to stay strong. Weakness, after all, is a temptation. It tempts the pugnacious to assert themselves, but strength is a declaration that cannot be misunderstood. Strength is a condition that declares actions have consequences. Strength is a prudent warning to the belligerent that aggression need not go unanswered. Peace fails when we forget what we stand for. It fails when we forget that our republic is based on firm principles, principles that have real meaning, that with them we are the last best hope of man on earth. Without them, we're little more than the crust of a continent. Peace also fails when we forget to bring to the bargaining table God's first intellectual gift to man, common sense. Common sense gives us a realistic knowledge of human beings and how they think, how they live in the world, what motivates them. Common sense tells us that man has magic in him, but also clay. Common sense can tell the difference between right and wrong. Common sense forgives error, but it always recognizes it to be error first. We endanger the peace and confuse all issues when we obscure the truth, when we refuse to name and act for what it is, when we refuse to see the obvious and seek safety in Almighty. Peace is only maintained and won by those who have clear eyes and brave minds. And he goes on, obviously, but that was, again, President Reagan, the late great President Reagan in 1985. Clear eyes and brave minds. And I'd like to think at Judicial Watch that we have clear eyes and brave minds. And I know at the end of our national anthem, uh, what is it we ask? It's one of my favorite lines of the national anthem. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Are we brave? I think many of us are. And even those that you may not like politically, they are. Uh, many of us are patriots, no matter our party. And, um, and I hope uh, that you take to heart President Reagan's admonition that we continue uh, to uh, remember those who committed their lives and lost their lives in defense of our freedom. Uh, with that, um, I hope to be with you again soon. I won't be here next week. I may not be here even the week after. I have this thing on my face that I have to have removed, and I'm hoping the surgery goes well and they get it all out and uh, without uh, making it even more difficult to look at my sorry face. 
but I hope uh, you pray for uh, a good outcome there, and I'll be with it, with you again sooner than you know. And until then, I wish you the best, and I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.